And if you would please take up and read from your copies of God's word of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We didn't quite get to finish from last time. So we're going to be, I'm going to read verses 15 through 23, though we'll be looking more especially at verses 19 through 23. Just kind of help get us in the context of where we are and what it is that we're reading. So if you haven't already, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 15. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the, Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you have written to us, preserved for us, and now brought to us here in our own language to read and understand. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten the the eyes of our heart so that we might grasp these wonderful mysteries. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you feel powerless sometimes in this world? I know I do. You know, I thought that when I would grow into being an adult, that the world would be a less scary place than it was when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, I worried about monsters in the closet. But when I became a sophisticated adult, I worried about the monsters in the Congress. Same fears, but different locations. But do you know why we fear monsters in the closet or in the Congress? We fear them because we believe that no one controls them. Or more importantly, that we don't control them. We believe that monsters aren't subject to anyone. That's why we fear them. But we at least try to make their job harder for them. I know when I was a kid, I realized that monsters can't get you if you have a comforter on That cloth of iron will prevent anything from getting through. And I spent many a sweaty night believing exactly that. But unfortunately, we as grown-ups aren't much better. We will assume that we can protect ourselves by various measures of preparation. But what we find is that, especially in this passage, we realize we can do far better. 
this passage tells us that we are also fighting the wrong kind of monsters. The monsters that we tend to look at are flesh and blood and can be stopped with bullets or blankets. But what we see here is that the Lord has defeated the true enemies and has ruled over them completely. And we'll see what that is. So last week, we took a look at the hope that we have in God, specifically the hope of his calling that we have. If you remember, we have been given the news that through the gospel our sins are taken care of and that we have a hope for heaven that cannot be crushed in any way. And we saw even further back when we looked at verses 11 through 14 that we have a glorious inheritance that we're waiting for that Paul brings up again here in verse 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The kingdom of heaven that we look forward to being in one day. And what makes it heaven is the fact that God is there. It's the inheritance that we're looking forward to. And today, as we finish out this first chapter of Ephesians, we're going to see the power of God. And this is something that Paul spends a good deal of time on in comparison to those other two things that he wanted us to know. So we're going to focus on this section, verses 19 through 23, and we're going to look at our two points that you can see in your outline. The first point is that God has waged war and won. God has waged war and won. And the second point is that we are to carry out the effects of that victory, and we'll see what I mean by that when we get there. So let's start and take a look at what it means that God has waged war and won. This is... A beautiful passage in verses 15 through 23 outlining why it is that we as Christians should have confidence. This is following verses 3 through 14 of, why, of telling us all the other reasons as to why we should have confidence. All the blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ and as well as the whole Trinity have poured out onto us. And what this has meant for us in our daily lives. And what this means for us in the future. But is the only hope that we have future-oriented? Is it just saying, well, as one cynic put it, that our hope is pie in the sky when you die by and by? That's not the only hope that we have. It's not just the chin up, things will get better. But there is something that we have to hope with today. And that's what we see in verses 19 and following. Here, Paul is, for lack of a better word, laying it on rather thickly describing God's power that he has for us. Look at what he does here in verse 19. It says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Just laying on word after word after word. You look at this in the original language. It's talking like the surpassing strength of his strong, mighty strength is the way that he's laying this on. And it would be kind of funny if he was talking about anyone else other than God. It would sound like he's trying to oversell it. Ever been in a car dealership and someone is really trying to convince you that this rust bucket is really capable of any sort of speed? Or just trying to convince you, hoping by laying on enough adjectives, you'll eventually buy it? This is not what Paul is dealing with here. If anything, he's underselling what God's power is capable of. He uses many different words for power and strength and As we get on, we'll see what this power and strength does. It's one thing to describe it, but it's another thing to see it in action. Uh, The commentators had referred to this as one thing of looking at a giant bulldozer. 
It's one thing to see and imagine what something like this is capable of, but it's quite something else to watch that thing plow through a forest and knock over trees. We're going to see what the mighty powers of God does. So we start in verse 20, and he describes a few different things here. Well, the first that he begins with is that God has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is a really big point that we don't talk about enough. The church rightly emphasizes that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's crucial. We can't leave that out. Any other, if we forget that, we become like every other religion that just says, work your way to heaven. The cross says you can't do that. Jesus had to do it for you. So that's very important. But when we leave out the part that he also was risen from the dead, that's what makes him unique. All of us are going to die at one point. Jesus dying was not what made him different. What made him different is that he rose from the grave. This is the emphasis on the power of God. That he was able to conquer death, the thing that we all fear. And the thing that we're all trying to avoid. Because death is the penalty for our sin. If death is conquered, that means sin can be conquered. And that's our real problem. Not the monster in the closet. It's our sin in our heart. This is the issue. And we're just now proving this can be dealt with. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that the penalty is fully paid. How do you know when someone's jail sentence is up? They're not in jail anymore. It's the same thing in death. How do we know that Jesus paid all the death penalty there is to pay? Because he's no longer dead. He is alive. And that's what we see here. That he has been raised from the dead and has promised that he can do the same thing for us. He can conquer death. But then he goes on. And look what he has here in the other half of verse 20. Not only was he raised from the dead... But he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What does this mean? Does this mean that God has a physical right hand? No, that's not what he's saying. It's saying that Jesus has been raised to a a position of power. So Jesus wasn't someone that was just thrown out a problem. He was also raised and exalted over all things. And has given him power over everything. How much of things? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Comes Paul with that thick slathering knife again. All these things that he's powerful over. Now, what does that mean? When I first looked at this, I had thought, like, okay, far above all rule, authority, and power. He is referring to human governments, the things that we fear in this world. He now stands over all of them. And when I did this research on this, I realized, well, in Ephesians 6, it talks about the same sort of rulers and powers, but it's referring to spiritual forces. Look with me at Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Same words that he's using here in Ephesians 1. So when he's talking about he's over all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, these are spiritual forces that he has overcome. Now I'll admit, when I first read that, that seemed a little disappointing. It's like, well, I wanted you to, what about people over in Beijing? What about those in power in Moscow or in our own country? This is far more important 
Who's behind all those people? It's these spiritual forces that he rules on. He goes straight to the source. That he is in control of all of those things. But how in control? Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. You ever seen those pictures of those Roman gladiators when they've got their foot on the neck of their opponent? That's the picture. Total control. If your enemy's foot is on your neck, you've been beaten. There's no coming back from that. Under full control. And that's the position that Paul describes that Jesus has over his enemies. Under his feet. One commentator phrased it this way and says, The powers are not simply inferior to Christ, they are also subject to him. It's a subtle nuance, but that's an important distinction to keep in mind. The word that is used here is that he has put all things in subjection under him. This is not something where it's like, well, we have these enemy forces contained, but they might still be able to do some stuff in there and around that we can't quite have any control over. He's got them fully under his thumb. Nothing can happen without his direct permission. We've seen that picture earlier. If you remember way back in the Old Testament in Job chapters 1 and 2. When Satan keeps coming back to God and saying, well, I don't think your man is as good as you say he is. And God says, okay, well, you can go do this, that, and the other thing, but you can't go here. And he does this, that, and the other thing and comes back to God for additional permission to do anything else. And God says, okay, I'll let you do this, that, and the other thing, but you can't touch his life. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil and holds him on a leash. This is an important thing to remember as we look at news and world events, particularly in the next few weeks as Americans come, go, go to the polls once again. It's a good reminder that the Lord has all things under his control. But if we're honest and we look at this world, sometimes we still have nagging questions. Is this what control really looks like? Seems like there's a lot of death, destruction, and disease in the world. Seems like there's a lot of oppression. How can we say that God's really in control when it looks like that? Could have said the same thing at the foot of the cross. That doesn't look like victory. Hanging, bleeding, dying on a shameful Roman method of execution. But as one writer said, oftentimes God's victories are cleverly disguised as defeats. And that's what it looked like then. And that's often what it'll look like now. That's why we're called to trust him. That's why Paul tells us this. We also look forward to a time in which, the, in which this rule will be very evident. Yes, the Lord is giving evil forces one more chance. One final hurrah. But there will be defeat. As we are seeing in our Revelation class. Evil is doomed. It's only a matter of time. All these things are under his feet. And we can see that based on what he's already done. He sent his son to die, but he also raised him from the dead and also exalted him over all things. But then Paul goes one more step further. 
And that's when we look into our second point. We are to carry out the effects of this victory that God has won. In verse 22, as he put all things under his feet and then gave him as head over all things to the church. It's a good translation that he gave Christ to the church as a gift. This seems like a pretty big gift, isn't it? In fact, it was so much, there was a good deal of argumentation about how we should translate that word give. It should be translated give. But there was like, well, maybe it means appointed. Because surely it can't mean the father is giving a gift like that of his son to the church. But that's what the text says. He has been given to us as a gift, as head over all things. And then it continues as to what the church is. is verse 22, excuse me, verse 23, that the church is his body. This is something that's really unique. It's worth our thinking about, especially as you go home this afternoon. This is something to ponder. The connection between Christ and his church as a head and a body. How connected is your head to your body? This is something that's very close. Can you live without your head? Not for very long. This is the source of all cohesiveness and control, as one scholar put it. That Christ is over the church and is providing its life and its direction. The person who is over all things, the person who has been raised from the dead, has promised to fill the church with his power, like a head with a body. We're called to live that out. And then he goes in this final phrase here in verse 23. He fills, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I can't tell you how many pages I've read trying to understand what that last phrase means. There are basically two schools of thought, and both of them, I think, can be proven from Scripture. Some would say this is supposed to be translated, this is the fullness of Christ who is being filled by the Father. We can see that in Philippians. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. Or it can be translated that it's the fullness of Christ who fills the universe with his power and himself. We can see that in Ephesians 1.10. All things are going to be summed up in Christ. I think it's the latter. If I dare enter into that scholarly discussion. But I think this is what it's talking about. And it's a great reminder to us who are here in the church. Of the gift that Christ has been to us. The one who is going to control us is the one who controls all things. That not a speck of this universe is outside of his purview. That Christ keeps track of all things. So what does this mean for us? All right, the Lord is really powerful. Okay, he's raised his son from the dead and exalted him to the heavens and has been given to us. How does this change your Monday morning? I think, well, I thought of a few things. So the first one is that if Jesus rules the world, he rules you too. We can't go around bragging that the God of the universe is our boss and is the one who fills the church with his power if we don't do what he says on Monday morning. He has things for us to do. All the way down to those of us who are adults, those of us who are kids. So kids, 
Christ's rule for you is to listen to your parents. That can be hard to do sometimes. But that's exactly what he calls you to, has responsibilities for you as well. And for us who are adults, he calls us to obey him in all things, even when it's hard. When it's forgiving someone who's hurt us. When it's watching someone who is dying. And to trust the Lord anyway. To find joy in our God when we can't even find happiness in our daily life. These are the things that he calls us to do. That's what it means for him to be in control. To let his agenda guide our lives and not the other way around. That he not only controls what we do on Sunday morning, but what we do with our pocketbooks on Tuesday. He governs all these areas of our lives. I think the second way that we can apply this is to look at what it is that makes us comfortable, makes us trust him. Are we more comfortable with our lives when our guy is in office? Are we more comfortable with our lives when we've got enough money in the bank? I'm not saying it's bad to prepare or be wise with the things that God has given to us. But we don't and shouldn't have our souls rest in these things. Because they can all be lost in a moment. But those of us that trust in our ability to take care of ourselves, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, or trust in our health... A stomach bug can remove all trust in that. Nothing brings a young man down quite like a microbe you can't see. We can't trust in those things. But we trust in him. Not in politics. Not in blankets at night. The things that we trust in are not worth trusting. And it's tragic to trust in things that are so fragile. When we have something like this promised to us. Here Christ stands on the neck of Satan and we would like to come to him and say, it's like, could I have one more thing? I would feel a lot more comfortable if you would also get my bank account to this number. I'd feel a lot more in control if you would also just get these kids to behave. He calls us to so much more. So we shouldn't act like the world is out of control. Because it's not. It may look that way to us. I'm sure it looked that way to the disciples when Jesus died on the cross. But the same way that we could look at those disciples and say, come on, he said he would rise again from the dead. He mentioned that a whole lot of times, you know. And and the disciples could look at us from glory and say, he's also promised to come back, you know. He said he's going to put all things right. Why are we freaking out? It's the same thing we could learn from them. And that's what we can learn from this passage. So no matter what it is that you fear, monsters in the closet or in the halls of power, don't trust in blankets. Don't trust in ballots or bullets. But trust in the Lord our God, who has his feet on the neck of all of these opposing forces. And finally, and I think this is something that we can apply most personally, That he's more powerful over your sin. That's the real threat that you face. It's those things in your heart that tell you, this is what you deserve. You need this. I know Jesus said not to do that. But it's hard to live this life all the time. We need a break from Jesus now and then. 
Those are the real things that we need to fight. And Christ gives you power for that. Why it brings up the fact that he has been raised from the dead. He can raise you from the spiritual dead. The thing that you struggle with does not have to be the thing you struggle with for your entire life. The Lord gives you the promise that he can make you holy. That's more impressive than anything else he could do. So if that's something that you are, if you're looking, it's like, well, I've not seen that sort of power in my life. I seem powerless against this particular sin struggle. Maybe you're not relying on Jesus at all. Perhaps you've never surrendered to him. The demonstration of God's power is the fact that he died and rose again. He can raise your soul from the dead. Can see and bring new life into your heart. How do you do that? Ask him. Surrender your heart to him and say, I can't run this. But I'm going to trust that you can. And then dive into the things and the resources that he's given to you in the word and in prayer. And you will see the power of God come to life. It seems like very simple things. We look for conferences, for revivals, for one-stop shops to finally kick our holiness into gear. It's not found there. It's found in the simple, daily Surrendering to Christ. It's not a pill. It's not quick. But it's powerful. If we wait with patience, we'll see it. If we trust in him, we'll see it. I know it's hard to trust in him. It's especially hard to trust that he will work his power in those that we can't control either. But that's the hope. That's what he provides for us. And that's what we look to. So as you go out this week and as you turn on your cable news or download your podcast of choice, for whatever hardships come, and there will be many, not going to pretend it won't be, remember that the Lord has his foot on all of this. Nothing is happening that he is not fully aware of and allowing to happen. And will one day, somehow, and I don't know how, I just know who he is and he's really good at it of turning horrible things into his glory. We wait for that day with patience because one day he will set all things right. One day we will see what it looks like to see Jesus in full physical control of the world and it will be beautiful. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you so much for this time that we have spent together. Lord, I pray that we would remember that you are victorious over all things. And you've given us the pleasure of getting to tell the rest of the world that you are king. I pray that you would give us boldness to go and herald the gospel. That we, that you are victorious. Give us boldness to share this with our neighbors. Give us boldness to share this with ourselves as we face each day. Lord, I pray that you would make us holy and grow ever deeper in this trust for you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.